0: Good morning brothers and sisters, we extend a warm welcome to everybody who's present here this morning, brothers and sisters and especially visitors who are joining us and also those who are with us remotely via the live stream. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the word of God and may God be praised and glorified by our worship. We have the following announcements. Sister Brittany Tenhoff has requested an attestation to the Free Reformed Church of Mount Nashura. We wish her the Lord's blessings in her new congregation and also with her upcoming wedding, which is scheduled for this Friday at 1pm in Mount Nashura. Sister Margaret Cooper and Brother Keith Vandalia from the Free Reformed Church of Rockingham have indicated their intentions to enter into the marriage state According to the ordinance of God, they desire to begin this holy state in the name of the Lord and complete it to his glory. If no lawful objections are brought forward, the ceremony will take place, the Lord willing, on Saturday, the 1st of April at 1 pm in the Free Reformed Church of Southern River with Reverend D. Poppy officiating. Sister Chamin Boone and Brother Adam Sibham have indicated their intentions to enter into the married state according to the ordinance of God. They desire to begin this holy state in the name of the Lord and complete it to his glory. If no lawful objections are brought forward, the ceremony will take place, the Lord willing, on Thursday, the 6th of April at 1pm, in the Free Reformed Church of Southern River with Reverend D. Poppy officiating. This morning, the worship service will be led by Reverend Anderson from our sister church in Rockingham. Before we commence the worship service, let's sing together Psalm 18, verse 1.
1: Congregation, let us rise to worship our Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let us sing to God's praise from Psalm 65, the verses 3 and 4. might indeed was seriously acclaimed when he brought his people out of their slavery in Egypt to himself at Mount Sinai. And having delivered them from their slavery, they were able to hear the summary of his holy law contained in the Ten Commandments. That same law we will hear again together this morning. Having been delivered from our slavery to sin, through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And will respond to the hearing of God's law with the singing of Psalm 1, all stanzas. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, or anything that is your neighbour's. Let us come before our Lord in prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that as your people we're able to come together again on this day that you have set apart for rest and worship. We thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of belonging to you, for we do not take that for granted. We know that we too are born in sin, and that sin still cleaves to us. And indeed, as we reflect upon the past week, despite all our endeavours to the contrary, nevertheless, we see sin in thought, word, and deed. We are not perfect And we understand that your holy law requires perfection. And that we can only belong to you through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. For he has paid the ultimate penalty for us. And so Lord we pray that you would not only forgive our sins and trespasses as we come before your holy presence. But that you would continue to fill us with your word and spirit such that more and more we would become conformed to the image of your son to follow him and to represent him in this life. So Lord we ask that you would receive our praises this morning, that you would speak to us by your holy word and that you would bless the preaching such that that word would live in our hearts and lives. We do ask this humbly, and in the name of your Son, our living Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning you will find in the Gospel according to Luke. We're going to read from Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, designing to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, You, go and do likewise. Let's respond with singing from hymn 74, the verses 1 through 4. In uh, Rockingham recently we completed a series of sermons on Romans chapters 12 and 13. So the sermon you hear this morning is related to that. It is in fact the last in the series and we're going to read, therefore, from Romans. Romans 13, the verses 8 through 14. The Apostle writes as follows, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Following upon the preaching of God's word, we'll sing from Psalm 16, verse 1. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 12 of Romans, Paul begins his practical exhortation to the believers in Rome. Up till that point, he has been discussing the the basic content of his gospel and what that all involves. I won't summarize those chapters. That would take me more than one sermon, of course. But in chapter 12, he begins then the practical outworking. How do we respond to God's mercy? And indeed, in the chapters just leading up to chapter 12, he has been emphasizing God's electing mercy for his people. And so we began that exhortation, if you take a look at the first verse of chapter 12, as follows. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, so here's our motivation, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. So he's saying the way we ought to be responding to God's mercies toward us is by giving to God our bodies, our lives as a living sacrifice. Normally, of course, a sacrificial animal is dead and you put it on the altar and you burn it. Metaphorically, we're to consider ourselves as good as dead for the service of God which makes us alive. In other words, that this flesh, this earthly body doesn't matter so much anymore to us for we know that in Jesus Christ we have eternal life and we're able to serve him whatever comes upon our paths. For he's rescued us from eternal death and put us into eternal life. But how do you flesh that out? How do you... Do that practically in your lives. Well, that's what Paul then is at pains to make clear in the rest of chapters 12 and 13 and continuing. In our text this morning, he begins by saying, Oh, no one anything. And it's actually a continuation of what he's just said At the beginning of chapter 13, in that rather famous passage of submission to the civil government, he's just said that we ought to pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So as it were, Paul is saying, well, while we're on the theme of paying what you owe, how about this? Owe no one anything except to love each other. I've summarized our text this morning under the following theme, getting ready for salvation. And we're going to see, first, pay up your debt of love. Secondly, wake up and arm yourself. And thirdly, salvation is coming. Which, of course, spells the acronym PAUSE. If you know me, you know I like cats. Our first point this morning, pay up your debt of love. Now, it's not for nothing that Paul uses this image of a debt And it's a debt, of course, that's not owing to our neighbor in the first place, as if our neighbor has caused us to be indebted to him. No, we're indebted to God for the mercy that he has shown to us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, God says the way to repay that debt is to love your neighbor. If we were going to love our neighbor only because we felt indebted to him, I don't think we'd be loving very many neighbors at all. But we're indebted to God. And the image of debt was a common one in the language of Paul's day. In Judea, Hebrew, or of a different dialect than the Old Testament, was spoken. And that dialect used the image of debt... For anything that had to do with necessity. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now for the Apostle Paul, the main point here is the what we call the second table of God's law. In other words, he wants to emphasize how we respond to those around us. Yes, yes. There's also love for God, which goes without saying. But what Paul is concerned with here is love for our neighbor. Which begs the question, why Paul writes what he does in verse 8. I mean this, he says, Oh no one anything except to love each other, for the one, and then literally he says, For the one who loves the other has fulfilled the law. Well, why didn't Paul just say, for the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law? After all, he is going to go and quote that command in a little bit. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is reason here, brothers and sisters? Many Jews of Paul's day, when they looked at that commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, and it comes in Leviticus 19. And they looked at the context of Leviticus 19. They concluded, your neighbor is your fellow Israelite, your fellow person who stands with you in the covenant of God. The Lord Jesus, of course, as we have read, made a quite different point with his parable. And indeed, Paul makes that same point in the way he circumscribes the command in verse 8. The one who loves the other has fulfilled the law. Now, once again, in the language of Paul's day, the other was a way of talking about a stranger as opposed to a friend. And so, for example, if you asked a, a, a mate of yours um, who had met somebody else, and you asked him, did you know the person you met? He could answer, oh yeah, he was a friend. Or he could answer, no, 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 he was an other. And that's the way that, that word other was used in the day. So when Paul is saying not neighbor but other, he is emphasizing the point that the Lord Jesus also had made that loving our neighbor is not just loving one of your brothers and sisters, it is loving the stranger. The other. And that brings us, of course, to that parable of the Lord Jesus because that will lie behind the way Paul is putting this. He understands and knows the teaching of the Lord Jesus. He is, after all, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when the Lord Jesus told that parable, he told it to a person who is described as a a lawyer, in other words, somebody who knew the law of God, a scribe. And that person, after his initial conversation with the Lord Jesus, is seeking to justify himself and therefore says, Well, who is my neighbor? And for that reason, Jesus tells the parable. The parable of a person, an Israelite, who is going from um, Jerusalem to Jericho through that lonely mountain pass and meets up with robbers. These robbers strip him, beat him up, And we're told, literally, he is half dead, lying on the side of the road. Then, by coincidence, says the Lord Jesus, a priest happens along. Now, each of the three people that Jesus speaks about have a very good reason not to want to help the person that's lying on the side of the road. And we need to understand that. The priest sees somebody there that's almost dead. A priest is a person who, in order to serve as a priest in the temple, needed to remain ritually holy. One way to get out of your job would be to touch a dead person. It was understandable that a priest, if he's saying, look, if I'm going to continue serving in the temple, I have got to keep my ritually holy state. If I touch that person and he really is dead or he dies while I'm with him, I can't work for another week because I've got to do all the ritual washings all over again. And so he bypasses him. Levite, exactly the same thing. He bypasses him, for he too needs to be in a ritually clean state to be able to serve the Lord in his temple. And surely the service of the Lord comes before the service of people. So he bypasses him. And then a Samaritan. And then we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that Jews and Samaritans had absolutely no dealings with each other. And why? Because they believed that the other person was a heretic. For Jews, Samaritans were heretics. They were not true worshippers of God. They only had the first five books of the Old Testament and they had even changed portions of them to suit themselves to say that you needed to worship up north in Samaria instead of Jerusalem. They were treated as excommunicants. Excommunicants ought to be shunned. You're not to have anything to do with them. And vice versa. The Samaritans were convinced that the Jews were entirely wrong and to be treated as heretics, excommunicants. You're to have nothing to do with them. And yet this Samaritan has mercy on the half-dead person lying there. Hence Jesus' question at the end of the parable. Who was the neighbor to this half-dead fellow? And of course, the conclusion has to be the Samaritan. And Jesus says that's the way we ought to be seeing God's command to love our neighbor. Loving our neighbor trumps any kind of ritual command that you could think of for the priest or the Levite. And it trumps also the idea that somebody might be an outcast in society. We are to show love to the stranger. And that's exactly the way Paul puts it. He who loves the other has fulfilled the law. You know, thinking about that command to love our neighbor, most of us at times have probably thought about somebody else, usually in the church. and perhaps even an elder, thinking to ourselves, well, I wish he would stop badgering me or criticizing me. I wish he would take notice of that command to love. Of course, at the same time, we forget that admonition ought to be encouragement in love. And there is certainly a place for it. But on the other hand, it's also a healthy reminder that if we really do need to bring admonition, whether as a brother or a sister, whether as an elder or an office bearer, of course we can always say, yes, we bring this in love. But we need to demonstrate that we truly are motivated by love. By love for God, for his mercies toward ourselves. We need to be able to communicate that to the person that we are speaking to. That's often very difficult, at least for males. Because the only way you're going to communicate that effectively is by making yourself vulnerable. In other words, showing where your love really is. But when we do that, then we achieve true communication and we're able to effectively admonish in the name of the Lord, in love. I think we're all guilty of saying things without communicating that love at the same time. I'm not necessarily saying that we never intended to communicate with love. Hopefully we did. But how often do we miss out actually communicating that aspect of what we're trying to say. And as you know it's, it's easiest to skip that with those who are closest to us. Whether it's parents to children or spouse to spouse. If we're upset we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable if we think the other needs to be criticized. And we just blurt it out. What love means, brothers and sisters, whether it's for brothers and sisters or whether it's for a complete stranger, what it means is that we have a heartfelt concern for the person because of the kind of love that God had for us when we were strangers to him in sin. And a heartfelt concern begins with prayer. I'm sure each of us at one time or other has felt incredibly annoyed with somebody else, probably in the church as well. Ask yourself is your first reaction, let me pray for this person? Do we pray for our neighbors? For the people we sit next to or work next to. Are they a concern to us? For they are the other. That brings me to the second point this morning. Wake up and arm yourself. That's essentially what Paul is saying in the ensuing verses. Besides this, he says, you know the time. But the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believe. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. There's striking metaphors that the apostle uses. There are several different metaphors combined here. There's sleeping versus waking up. There's taking your old clothes off, the deeds of darkness, and putting on new clothes There is the image of darkness versus light. There is the image of arming yourself. Indeed, coming to faith in Jesus Christ has woken us up. As Paul goes on to write in Ephesians 5, Wake up, O sleeper, arise from the dead, for Christ will shine on you. Faith wakes us up to the reality in this world. It gives us a totally different perspective on looking at the world and at ourselves. Who am I? What place do I have in society? In history? And where is this world going? We become alert to where we stand as children of God faced with the fact that we are going to serve the Lord in a world that has been plunged into darkness by the devil. And we're called to serve him. And so another aspect of this image is the fact that we realize that some big battle is about to occur. It is the battle of the last times. It has everything to do with judgment day. Isn't that the way the New Testament begins? As well as ends? Begins with John the Baptist. What is John the Baptist warning of? He's warning of the judgment of God. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Make sure that your sins are washed away. That you can face up to God and to his kingdom. And it ends. In the book of Revelation, with the great judgment and the issuing in of a restored heaven and earth. And so, says Paul, if we have awoken to this reality, we need to arm ourselves. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. For we are indeed going to do battle. And if we arm ourselves, you, of course, can think of other passages, particularly Ephesians 6, where he talks about the, the weapons of our spiritual warfare. As we put on, for example, that breastplate of righteousness, we, we take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and, of course, the sword of the Spirit, which is, says Paul, The sword of the Spirit is the word of God, for the Spirit works through and in that word, that holy word that God commits to us in the Scriptures. And Paul goes on to say, if we're going to do that, if we're going to be awake and alert and realizing that the night for us is past, day is dawning, and we're going to have to fight, then what we need to be doing is making no provision for the flesh. To gratify its desires. And what he means by that, he's just written. Let's walk properly as in the daytime, not in drunken parties. Translated here, orgies and drunkenness. Not in Sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy, coming up for oneself instead of for the Lord. Elsewhere, the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 15 bad company corrupts good morals. And so when he says make no provision for the flesh, he's saying make sure you don't put yourself in situations where there is going to be that temptation. Make sure you don't put yourself in situations where you are surrounded by people that have a totally different view of reality and this world than you do. And they're going to be a bad influence on you. We sung, did we not, after the reading of the law from Psalm 1, and does not Psalm 1 say exactly the same thing? Blessed is the person who does not stand in the seat of scoffers, who does not associate with those that want nothing to do with God. And you know, back in Paul's day, the situation in society wasn't too different to our own. One of the courses that I give in languages, we read a book on fishing from the second century. It's not written by a Christian, it's a completely pagan book, but it's just telling you how to fish and what kinds of fish are out there and what they're good for. But he does tell us also, in a little digression at one point, a very interesting little story of an orphan, somebody who was orphaned and therefore inherited a big house all to himself. And of course all his friends come, invited and uninvited. There's this wild party and they end up trashing the house until of course uncles and aunts hear of what's going on and an appropriate punishment comes. The point being that this idea of wild parties was just as common in Paul's day As it is in our own society. And the Apostle is saying these sorts of things are places where we ought not to be. Do not make provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The upshot, of course, is that we're to be living out of faith. Every single moment of every day, in whatever we do, at work, in our relaxation. And we're to find delight in God and his word, not in the pleasures of this world. And the apostle is asking us to take a a good and deep look at ourselves. That's the way he started, was it not, in chapter 12. That we present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. And if at times, brothers and sisters, we catch ourselves struggling perhaps with personal devotions, with club, even perhaps with coming to church and honoring God's day and worshipping with his people as they come, twice. Instead, being tempted to make it a personal day of recreation then we really do need to ask ourselves that difficult question what truly motivates my life and have I indeed appreciated what God's mercies in Jesus Christ really mean for me for if I do then surely my desire will be to give God my body, my life and sacrifice for Him. That brings us to the third point this morning. Salvation is coming. I'm referring, of course, to what Paul writes specifically. In verse 11, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now that's not the way we commonly speak, is it? We commonly say, I'm saved in Jesus Christ, past tense. Paul is saying, well, as true as that might be, there's a sense in which salvation is future And we're nearer to it now than when we first believed. We're getting closer and closer to salvation. In other words, completed salvation, the fulfillment and renewal of all things, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything that that stands for. And already in this letter in chapter 8, Paul has been speaking of the fact that we ought to be yearning, yearning for the fulfillment, yearning for the salvation that Christ has in store for us. He writes, for example, in 818, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God creation was subjected to futility but we yearn for the time when the Lord will return and all things will be renewed if we're to be yearning for that if we're to be putting our lives as a sacrifice a living sacrifice for God being alert and awake realizing the struggle of this life, then we also, brothers and sisters, need to be asking ourselves, of course, what am I supposed to be doing in God's kingdom? Sometimes we have a a clear sense of that and sometimes we don't. Sometimes you can wonder, well, how should I be directing my life that would truly be a way of, of being a living sacrifice for God? And if we do you have those questions and they can be legitimate. first thing we need to do of course is to pray. To pray that the Lord may open our eyes to the avenues for service that he puts in front of us. And the second thing of course that we need to do is to become more and more familiar with God's word. For That is God's message to us, through which his Holy Spirit works in our hearts and lives. Thirdly, we need to begin with the people nearest to us. Those are the people that God places in our lives. And ask ourselves then, how can I encourage these people? How can I pray for them? How can I be a good influence on them? How can my faith have a positive rub-off on those people that God has placed around me, whether brothers or sisters or whether people from outside? For that is love in action. For God in the first place and therefore for the other, the neighbor. I encourage you all this morning as a reflection, brothers and sisters, to ask that difficult question. Is this me? Am I a living sacrifice for the Lord? Do I belong here? And may God grant that our hearts and lives may more and more be filled with his word and spirit such that. More and more, we do indeed walk that path of thankfulness, genuine thankfulness, for him and for his glory. Amen. Let's sing from Psalm 16, verse 1. prayer this morning. We will give thanks that Brother Wayne Fisser was able to receive successful back surgery in the past week. And we will also pray for the heart operation this coming Wednesday for Brother Trent Courthouse. Let us come before our Lord in prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we First of all, do praise you and give you thanks for the mercies that you have bestowed upon us and your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, your love for us in him is so great that we will always feel inadequate in our response. But we do pray, Lord, that you would fill us more and more with your word and spirit such that We would genuinely be motivated to put our lives on the line for you as living sacrifices. We ask, Lord, that you would show us the way. That you would open our eyes to the opportunities to demonstrate that love for the other that you ask of us. And that you would give us the strength and the power to be able to walk that path of love for you. We ask for forgiveness for all those times that we have not walked that path, Lord, that we've been selfish, or even that we have indeed made provision for the flesh. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to walk your paths, and not those that lead back to the ways of darkness, the path of the devil. We pray, Lord, that In your fatherly goodness, you would surround us also with your care in the coming week. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings that you shower upon us. They're too numerous to mention. May we never take them for granted. We thank you in particular this morning for the successful back surgery performed on Brother Wayne Fisser. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that we have with the medical profession. But we know that they're always in your hands. And so we pray, too, that he may continue to have a, a good and blessed recuperation. We pray too, Lord, for your blessing upon the heart operation planned for this Wednesday for Brother Trent Korthaus, and we ask that you would be with him, that he would know that he is in your care, whatever may occur, and that, Lord, his life as all of our lives, day by day, are lives that are given over to you. And that you may take all our anxieties from us. And we ask that you would do that, Lord, for we are so weak and we so often do feel still anxious when there's no need in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd be with us this week. We pray that you would indeed open our eyes and that you would make us to be your children working in this world for your glory. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever in Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. At this point, your gifts and offerings will be gratefully received. We're reminded in Proverbs 3 honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Thereupon we'll be singing from Psalm ninety six, the verses four, five, and eight.